Attention, this is not legal advice. If you are experiencing a legal emergency, contact an attorney or your local public defender's office. The views expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of Gin and Justice. Justine and I'm Amanda. Welcome to another legal brief with Gin and Justice. Hey, leave us a review. <laughs> leave us a review. Give us five stars. Be Follow cool, us bro. on all the socials. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you will hear previews of our episodes coming up if you follow us on social media. So you'll get to know who it is ahead of time and you'll be able to kind of get the gist of what the episode is about and you get a nice little preview of the conversations we have with all of our wonderful guests so make sure to do that this yeah. week we are bringing you some criminal justice news stories yeah with our maybe unwanted opinions but what else <laughs> are you listening to us for <laughs> i'll start so the first one I wanted to read bits and pieces of to you is from the University of Michigan, and it was written by Morgan Sherburn, and the headline is, Nearly Half of U.S. Kids Live in Homes with Criminal Justice Involvement. Four in ten children in the United States grow up in households in which a parent or co-residing adult faces at least one criminal charge were convicted of a felony or spent time in prison, says this University of Michigan study. The study is called Measuring Intergenerational Exposure to the U.S. Justice System. Ah, it's like generational trauma. It really is. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Prior efforts to quantify the extent of crime and justice spillover within households has been hampered by severe data limitations. Federal data collection fails to capture non-incarceration events, track intergenerational spillover within families that depart from nuclear family model, and fail to follow children over time. Using data from the U.S. Census Bureau, Treasury Department, and Criminal Justice Administrative Records System, Mueller, Smith, and colleagues at the university were able to overcome data limitations that had constrained this area of research for decades. In addition to finding dramatically higher rates of intergenerational exposure overall, the researchers found that the child exposure to heterogeneous in the U.S. population, more than 60% of Black and Native American children and kids from household incomes below medium income, have intergenerational exposure to the justice system twice the rate of white children. Twice. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Circumstances during early childhood play an important role for a range of lifetime outcomes. It is quite alarming that the model experience for minority children in the U.S. is one of indirect exposure to criminal justice. Yeah, I mean, Obama gave that, like, famous speech, like, where are all the black fathers? Right. So and he, that was really like the first time I think as a nation we talked about mass incarceration mm -hmm. out loud really is like when the conversation started. And that I got from Michelle Alexander's book, <laughs> The New Jim Crow. <laughs> Can't plug, plug it enough. <laughs> 
Brittany Street, a co-author of this study and the assistant professor of economics at the University of Missouri, said that these findings have more implications, not just for criminal justice policy, but our overall social policy in the U.S. and more generally. Early life exposure is highly correlated to a range of negative childhood development outcomes, including cognitive difficulty, being behind in school, teen fertility, teen crime, and death by age 18, even after controlling for a range of factors, including household income, place of birth, age, sex, and race. This provides strong evidence that the justice system is a major factor in the intergenerational propagation of economic inequality and racial disparities in the U.S. And this research was performed by economists from the University of Michigan, University of Missouri, and the U.S. Census Bureau. Depressing. Yeah, I mean, this it is definitely America. makes sense because, I mean, we've had so many statistics on here that talk about how many people are on probation or parole mm -hmm. or, um, you know, have been involved, are justice involved. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense that this it trickles down to their kids. Yeah. 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 And it really is. It truly is a cycle. You know, if you're in a family where, you know, being incarcerated or being involved with the system is a uh, thing that is normalized or that is something that you see often or is experienced in your family, then there's really, I, and this is just my personal feelings, there's not an incentive. Well, I shouldn't say incentive. I don't know what the word is I'm looking for, but there's not really a, it's not like a, sh a shocker to yourself if you then get involved or, you know, as like a child growing up or, you know, a young adult, because it's like, oh, this is just a normal thing that happens in life. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm sure that that and that's just like that that trickle down effect as well. Right. So and it's like the it's just like an abuse cycle or an alcoholic cycle or, you know, any of those family cycles mm -hmm. and where families continue patterns. And yeah, well, that's really sad. Sorry. <laughs> well, I wanted to talk today about this has been kind of a, an issue that's been going on for a little bit and we haven't really touched on it yet, but I know that we talk about one of the ways that we can really achieve criminal justice reform is through progressive prosecutors. And mm -hmm. so there's been some pretty uh, outspoken progressive prosecutors uh, like Larry Kratzer out of Philadelphia and George Gaskin out of LA. And the one that's been in the news a lot recently Oh, and then there was uh, Monique Worrell from Orlando. So, and uh, actually her predecessor prior to her coming into office, Aramis Ayala, um, she took a stance against the death penalty here in Florida, which is like a big no-no. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't like that. Yeah, there. she pretty much got blacklisted like immediately and she got taken off so of crazy. several cases. <laughs> so it's like, Florida you have the, the most exonerees from death row than any yeah. other state. So, um, that's insane. Yeah. So, yeah, well, yeah. So anyways, you know, that I think what happened to Ayala is really demonstrative of, okay, we're going to give you this, you know, overreaching power to be a prosecutor, but only if you use it in the way that we tell right. you to, exactly. um, that's exactly what happened. And so that actually ties into what I want to talk about, which is the Chesa Bowden issue that's been going on. So for those listeners who don't know, Chesa Bowden is or was a district attorney in San Francisco and outwardly 
criminal justice reform, progressive prosecution, named one of the nation's most progressive prosecutors and had really put in a lot of reform issues and started coming under fire <laughs> through what was pushed as a crime wave, which we hear. We love that crime wave. There's a crime wave. And so they say there was a crime wave that included car break-ins, Asian American hate crimes stemming from the pandemic, kind of all of this stuff going on, which I don't really think is a prosecutor's fault. Right. Um, but essentially residents or people pushing residents um, said that these progressive policies were putting the safety of residents at risk and they wanted to recall the DA, which is something that can be done in some places. And so those who wanted to recall... <laughs> happened to Leslie Nope. Can happen to anybody. So yeah, some places do allow for voters to recall somebody in a political position, which is what happened to Chessa Bowden. And so proponents of the recall spent over seven million dollars conveying that message to San Francisco voters in a schmear campaign. I swear, um, it only takes some money to get whatever you want. <laughs> it's insane. So so yeah so that's what had happened there was basically this string of you know quote-unquote crime spree i'm not saying that there wasn't but i'm just i say quote-unquote because i don't think it's related to criminal justice reform policies right. and that people definitely have a different otherwise but okay so yeah and people definitely have a different opinion on that i was just reading about a young lady in um new orleans no. who you know, has always been a progressive criminal justice reform advocate. And then New Orleans has been putting in place some criminal justice reform policies recently. And I guess somebody who was out on bail, who had a long criminal history, this is from the article I was reading, ended up killing a loved one of hers. I don't remember if it was her grandmother, her aunt, I can't recall. And so now she is like totally swapped sides. And so this article I was reading was an interview with her. And she um, says she feels torn because she's always been, you know, progressive criminal justice reform. But now she feels like those policies allowed somebody out. On that, I'll just say, uh, obviously not condoning any type of violence or crime, but I will say that the bail and bond is a constitutional right. You're constitutionally entitled to a bail or a bond uh, for most things. Now, some states have implemented ways that you can't get a bond. You know, if you're certain crimes, you cannot get a uh, bond or bail. But I just can't get on board with keeping everybody in jail because of the few people that would get out and do something heinous. You right. Know. And so that's that effect that we talked about with um, Allison. I think it was Allison regarding like recidivism and sex offenders mm -hmm. and all that stuff. And so, yeah. And I think, too, you know, you have to be weary when when they put in a in an article, oh, the person has a long criminal history because a long criminal history can be a lot of things could mean a lot of things. It could mean that you've been homeless for several years and you have several drug possessions. You have several petty thefts. You have several uh, trespasses, you know, all homeless crimes. And yeah, you may have like uh, 21 convictions, but they're all related to being homeless. Right. right. Exactly. So that's, you know, you always, he, here's the thing is you just always have to question the information that you're getting because you can just state a line in an article and that's not really covering what's really going on underneath. 
You could also, you know, and we've talked about with the SIP, you know, what's considered a violent crime. You know, if you go onto somebody's porch and you're sleeping on somebody's porch, that's, you know, burglary of a dwelling. And, uh, you know, that's considered a violent crime, even if you had no intent to commit anything violent or you had no intent to uh, harm somebody or, you know, so just the wording. I think we have to be careful with wording. I think the Marshall Project's does a really nice article actually they do a series of articles on wording and how words matter i know that there's a couple of addiction and substance use disorder articles and um, publications that also talk about wording and how words Mm -hmm. matter and so you know just don't always take everything you hear from a line anyway so back to this prosecutor (laughs) it's my long side rant Essentially, voters did ultimately vote to recall this DA uh, in June of this year. Um, It is really scary. And so with that being said, you know, I'm reading from a couple different articles regarding what happened uh, in this case. I think it's important to remember that these policies do not cause violent crimes, Mm -hmm. right? And so if we look at so these policies a lot of times the progressive prosecution policies are dealing with the after effect of a crime right so there's only so much you can do after but a lot of these crimes stem from our underlying social issues that are not being taken care of i mean even just going back to what you were just saying about children growing up in households that are justice involved Mm -hmm. um you know and and none of us who are pro-criminal justice reform or want to see things done differently are saying that, you know, people shouldn't be held accountable for their actions. That's I'm the number one. When I talk with my clients, I'm the number one, like you need to be accountable, you know, I'm just laughing because what you're talking about literally ties right into the one I'm going to talk about next. (laughs) Oh, that's so funny. So Anyways, what I think is important about this Bowdoin recall that if there's one takeaway is that now across the country, there are uh, legislators pushing for their states to allow recalls of DAs in elected positions, uh, which is interesting because I don't think that we allow for recalls on other elected officials Mm -hmm. that I think are more important. But I think it's a bad trend. I think it's a bad trend that you can push $7 million into a campaign against a prosecutor who's trying to do things differently and have them recalled when they were voted in by voters. I just think that's a bad taste. It's a bad look. And I also think it's a way to keep the status quo. And obviously the status quo isn't working. So when you have things like this happen, it should be raising alarm bells, right? That it's like, oh, these, you know, quote unquote, progressive prosecutors, and I'm not using quotes because I don't think they're progressive, but the policies that they're putting in place are like ending cash bail, uh, not Mm -hmm. contributing to mass incarceration, getting services in place for people. Like those aren't like radical ideas. Those are common sense ideas that we've talked about time and time again. So to keep the status quo and to keep only prosecutors in power that are going to continue to do things that don't work and that aren't going to disrupt the status quo that aren't going to contribute to mass incarceration or or whatever it is that you know putting in people in prison forever like those things aren't working and so to 
to remove prosecutors who are trying new things to help the underlying issues, I just think is outrageous. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the people of San Francisco should be upset and outraged. And uh, especially just because $7 million into a campaign to convince voters to recall somebody, like, that's alarming. You know what you could do with that money? (laughs) I mean, a lot of things. Well, actually, (laughs) I don't know about a lot of things, but you can do some things. You can do some stuff. You could do some stuff. You could do some stuff. Yeah, wild. That brings me into my next uh, little article I want to talk about. Perfect. It's an opinion piece published by The Hill. The opinion contributors are Anna Zamora and David Safavian. The headline is The Irony of Today's Tough-on-Crime Rhetoric. Oh, perfect. I feel like ours weaved right into each other today. (laughs) Let them go. Lock them up. Defund the police. Back the blue. Conflicting messages from political leaders are not only confusing and divisive, they also miss the point that many people don't feel safe and want solutions that work. Right. Locking up every offender for every crime is not the way to produce safer communities. We know that prison has almost no impact on crime. In fact, some studies have shown long sentences can increase crime. So why do we keep doubling down on this strategy? People must be held accountable for their actions. But there's a point of diminishing returns for using incarceration to manage crimes. Because governors and state legislators must balance budgets, solutions such as violence prevention programs, substance use treatment, job training, and mental health care don't get funding. Taxpayers instead shoulder the skyrocketing costs to cover the building, operating, and filling of prisons, leaving people and communities worse off. Yeah, and let's not forget, again, back to the wording, what constitutes Mm -hmm. a crime, Right. right? It's just like something that the legislators decide they don't want happening and so they just mm-hmm. say okay this is illegal now right you know like abortion <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> so now that's you know can be considered a crime so possessing yes. a substance that you're addicted to you have a substance use disorder and you are sick and you <laughs> use substances that you have on you now that's a crime right yeah i can't sleeping, believe it's still a crime. sleeping on benches you know these are all homeless Right. So we can have safer neighborhoods while addressing incarceration rates. Here are some proven approaches. Diversity programs, especially for youths, veterans, and individuals experiencing mental health emergencies, poverty, or drug use. Tossing people into a system that exacerbates these challenges is expensive, inhumane, and ineffective, and it will not help people get on a better path forward. You don't say... Mm-hmm. reforms for sentencing and parole america is the land of extreme sentencing it's decades true. i know decades <laughs> long and life sentences offer little chance of redemption and drum roll do not make us safer numerous policies can cap incarceration for minor offenses such as those adopted by louisiana have reduced reoffense rates and saved taxpayers money education and job training the higher the degree earned in prison the less likely someone is to reoffend. Since every case of recidivism is a new crime, a new court case, and a new victim, leveraging education to reduce the offense rate is one of the most cost-effective crime control strategies. Record clearance. A criminal record makes it difficult to find safe a safe place to live or meaningful work. Two yeah. critical ingredients for getting on your feet after prison. That's what Attorney General T.J. Donovan over in Vermont was talking about. If you have not listened Mm -hmm. to that episode, uh, go listen to that one because he talks about the importance of expungement and getting a clean record. Mm -hmm. Even though that's true, we often impose an economic life sentence for those with felony convictions. 
Clearing mm-hmm. old criminal records for those who remain crime free gives people a chance to rebuild their lives. Which you'll hear all about next week when we talk to Desmond Mead. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. Civil rights activist. I feel like he's the modern day Martin Luther King. I just love him and the work he's doing. Just a plug for next week. (laughs) Anyways, (laughs) you'll hear all about it. Back to another proven strategy. (laughs) (laughs) I swear, Amanda and I don't have ADHD together. (laughs) Start five stories at once. Um, Anyway, so better policing is the last one I want to get to. Justice reform is linked to better law enforcement. Today, police are pulled in every direction, called to be not just cops, but traffic monitors, social workers, mental health professionals, substance use disorder experts, and marital counselors. With police officers policing everything, they have a harder time keeping their community safe. More resources and training combined with specialized community programs to address such things as mental health and substance use can enable police to serve and protect better. None of these are new ideas. We have had some progress. For example, the First Step Act, which we have talked about before. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, though, the impact of the pandemic on the crime and bitter partisanship on both sides of the aisle threatened to derail real policy success, criminal justice reform as a whole. If we halt the momentum, politicians will send us back to the days marked by high crime and high incarceration rates. If our leaders have the best interests of their communities in mind, they'll leave the scapegoating and political divisions behind in a pursuit for truly effective solutions to make America safer. Yeah. And that's that. the importance of evidence-based and data-based policies. Like policies shouldn't be based on feelings. Evidence yeah, they should be... and database, just like addiction yeah, treatment. Evidence and database. <laughs> should be based Everything on should be evidence and database. Yes. We're going to call this like... evidence and database episode. <laughs> uh, yeah. Next week, though, Desmond Mead. Yes, you will not want to miss it. He is with the Florida Restorative Rights Coalition. He led the right for felons to vote here in Florida uh, pretty Mm -hmm. recently. And they're recently within the last couple of years, which is crazy. Florida up until recently was one of the few states that still decides that felons do not have the right to vote even after they have served their sentence. And he led the efforts along with several other people, but he was a leading force in the movement for sure. Yeah, huge movement. He basically did that. And also they're doing a ton of other cool stuff, which you'll get to hear about. But he also talks about a lot of the barriers that people face when they get out of the criminal justice system. And he is just as involved himself. And so he really just, you know, took flight after his release and really is like leading so many reform efforts here in the state of Florida. So you will definitely not want to miss that next week. And that really ties into a lot of the stuff we talked about today. All right, guys, and we are off the record. We will see you next time on Gin and Justice. Bye. All editing for Gin and Justice done by Gin and Justice podcast. Artwork by Justin Cardone. Photography by Kimber Schwakey. We'll see you next time on Gin and Justice.